0: City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 First Avenue North on the third I This morning, uh, but rather be here with us, and so we are grateful to you, uh, because I thought when you got here that what you'd be expecting is this, that we would uh, talk about classic lines from Seinfeld. That's what you came for, right? You know, think about it, Seinfeld was that sort of uh, seminal comedy of the 90s, and it gave us so many sort of catchphrases that have stuck around 20 years later in our culture, right? No soup for you. I, I say this to my children all the time, whether it's referring to soup or not. We sort of remember sort of the classic Seinfeld gags and and all of that, but one of the things that I I think about the most is uh, the Seinfeld sort of bit about yada, yada, yada. Uh, If you haven't seen this, they go through a phase in an episode or two uh, where they begin to shorten stories by saying, so I went to the movies, yada, 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 then I had Chinese food and I went home. Right? They use it for a number of reasons. They use it to sort of skip over some parts of the story and just get to the point. They use it to uh, skip embarrassing parts of a story that they don't want to talk about. Whatever they want to do, they just start the story, they say yada, 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 and then they end the story. This is sort of how the Seinfeld joke goes. What's interesting for you and for me is that a lot of times we do the same thing, especially when it comes to well-known Bible stories. So there was this giant and this little shepherd boy, yada yada yada, David kills the giant. Right? This is this is sort of in our minds how we do sort of famous stories. There was a giant wall, they walked around the wall a couple times, yada yada yada, and the walls came tumbling down. This is we we you could yada 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 a lot of these sort of classic Bible stories that everybody knows because we have this assumption that, well, we all know what happens here. We know what this story is about. It's interesting. This morning, as we've been walking through the life of David, we come to a story that's very easy for us to assume that we know what it's about and sort of yada, yada, yada over it. Right? This morning, what we're going to talk about is David and Bathsheba. Right? If, if, you, if I ask you about it, your response, what's David and Bathsheba about? Uh, David, what? Uh, was naughty. David, uh, you know, slept with a girl. Yada yada yada. She became his wife. Right? That's that's roughly when we think of the story of David and Bathsheba. That's roughly the way that in our mind we picture it. And it's interesting because most people, uh, whether they're Christian or not, are somewhat familiar with the character of David he's King David, he's the, the hero of sort of the, the Hebrew faith, he's a hero in the Christian faith, and if we know anything about him, usually we know the David and Goliath story, and if there's any other name that's associated with David, it's probably Bathsheba. And What's interesting is that as we read this story, yes, David's sin with Bathsheba is significant, but as we read 2 Samuel chapter 11, we yada, yada, yada over the bulk of what the story is about. Let me, let me do this. Let's stand together, and I want to read 2 Samuel 11 to you. And let's see how God will speak to us this morning. So stand with me, and I'll read out loud. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. I'm reading 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messenger, messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Uh, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she said to David, and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, "Uriah, Go down to your house wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And he did not go to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, And then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab besieged the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling him all the news about the fighting to the king, then... If the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not the woman, a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to his messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow him, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. City Church is the word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. It's interesting that when we think about the story of David and Bathsheba, we're thinking about something that happens in the first few verses of this chapter and the last few verses of this chapter, and we yada yada over most of the middle, most of what the point of this passage is. You see, on the one hand, there are lessons to be learned from the story of David and Bathsheba in particular. When you think about some of the details of it, it, it's interesting that when David sees her, that first of all, she lives in close enough proximity to the palace that David can see her. This means that she's, she's probably somebody that's a part of the, the ruling class, somebody who's a part of the people who live close to the king. And that's reinforced when David asked about her. You see, for you and I, most of us read the names Eliam and Uriah. And we go, okay, fine, neat, that's her dad's name. That's her husband's name. But Eliam, this is the first time he's mentioned, Eliam is one of David's chief counselors. One of David's right-hand men that have helped him throughout his reign. And Uriah is not just some random guy. Uriah, in fact, is one of David's mightiest warriors. He's one of David's 30 mighty men that were sort of his special forces. So this is not some random. This is not some random girl that David sees over on the rooftop. No, this is somebody who is a, likely a family friend, and B, likely a generation or a generation and a half younger than David. And so it's easy to sort of see in our cultural moment some of the things about David's abuse of power, about David using his power. To bring Bathsheba to him. About her helplessness in the face of this. And so it's easy for us to get stuck on that. And to want to dwell on that. And I think there are some lessons to be learned there. But when we dwell on just that. We miss the point of the bulk of this chapter. You notice that this really is not so much the story of David and Bathsheba? What's really going on here? is the story of David and Uriah. And what this is all about is something that's very relevant to all of us. And it's this. You and I will go to great lengths to cover our sin and our shame. We will go to great lengths to hide our sin and our shame from everyone else around us. Think about what David did. When David finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, what is his first response? His first response is to cover it. So instead of saying, hey Joab, send me a messenger, send me somebody, send me a low-ranking person to come give me news. He says, no, send me Uriah. Uriah, one of his Navy SEALs, one of his sort of special operations guys, his 30 best soldiers. I want him to be the messenger. And so as he comes back, David starts asking, hey, how's, it, how's the war? War going good? How's war for you? Yeah, is it good? Oh, neat, neat. Oh, great. And, and Joab, your boss, he's doing well? Yeah, good, good. And what's really interesting that we don't sort of get to see in our English text, but but David in this, this dialogue keeps using the term shalom, right? He's like, how's the, and in fact, in, in the Hebrew there's this thing, he says, how's the peace of the war? It's good, yeah? Is, is everyone at peace? Good, peacefulness, good. I like peace, yeah. I know it's peace of war, but, you know, it's still peace. And he says, you know what? It's been a long day. You've come in from the field. You've been battling. I, I've got some gifts. I've got some gifts for you and your wife. Why don't you go hang out with your wife? And so he sends them off, thinking, all right, I'm sending him, you know, with this great cut of meat. I'm going to send some bottles of wine with him. He's going to go down. He's going to cook the meat with his wife. He's going to drink the wine. They're going to have a great evening together. It's going to be a little bit of a date night. And guess what? Uriah will sleep with her, and I will be in the clear. No one will ever know what happened. Except Uriah throws a little bit of a wrinkle in this plan, doesn't he? He doesn't walk the extra quarter mile down the road to go to his house, but instead sleeps at the gate of the palace. So when David finds out about this, he calls Uriah back in and says, What are you doing, man? Well, I sent the wine. Go home. And Uriah, it's, it's interesting. Uriah almost seems to know what David is doing, right? He says, well, Look, all of my fellow soldiers are sleeping in tents. All of my fellow soldiers are, are in the work of battle. Am I gonna go home and have a big dinner with my wife? Am I gonna go home and crack open a couple bottles of wine? Am I gonna go home and sleep with my wife? None of my other fellow soldiers get to do that. No, I'm gonna stay here, David. I'm gonna sleep outside just like everybody else. So what does David do? What do you and I do when plan A to cover our sin and shame doesn't work out? I have another solution. So David says, okay, fine, you don't have to go, but you know what? You're going to stay for a couple of days, so let's eat. And David decides that his next plan is to get Uriah drunk. To get Uriah drunk and then send him home, and hopefully Uriah goes home in a little bit of a stupor and fixes David's problem for him. What happens? Uriah staggers out of the palace, drunk at David's hand, and sleeps on the lawn of the palace. He sleeps on the, on a basically like a, a bench outside the right outside the palace. In this case, Uriah drunk is more faithful than David sober. Right. This is this is an indictment in a real way. Of David. Because David, the man after God's own heart, David, who has done some. Even last week when we talked about the story of David and Mephibosheth, David offering us these beautiful pictures of the grace of God, something has gone wrong. And now David is desperately trying to cover for his sin. When he finds out that Uriah didn't go home, that's okay. Here's what we're going to do. He writes a little note and sends it by Uriah's hand. Uriah doesn't realize that what he's doing is carrying his death sentence back to the commander, back to the enemy. And so finally, David's sin is covered. Uriah is dead. But it's not just Uriah that's dead. Actually several of the most valiant men in David's army died as well. Did you catch that? Joab put him among the strongest soldiers, and several of those other soldiers died as well. David's cover-up cost more than just Uriah's innocent life. It cost the life of many of his other warriors as well. And what's David's response? When he gets news back of the battle, David's response is, Well it's war. You win some, you lose some. Soldiers are going to be soldiers. Some of them are going to die. Tell Joab, you're doing great. And David is just flippant about the loss of innocent life. What we see again and again, in the heart of this chapter is the way that not just David has sinned, not just the way that he has lusted after and then committed adultery with Bathsheba, but what we see is the way that David is working so hard to cover his sin, the way that David is striving so hard to make sure nobody else knows about what has happened interesting, because this is exactly what our culture teaches us to do. Our culture teaches us that we cannot let anyone know what our flaws are. Is this not the point of Instagram filters? Right? I don't have to put on makeup, well, I don't put on makeup, but you don't have, some people don't have to put on makeup because the filter on Instagram will take care of that for me. All my blemishes will go away. I will look flawless. Hide your flaws. Get a filter. Do we ever post on social media? Hey, I had a really mediocre day today and kind of fought with my wife. No, we only put the good things on social media. Had a great day of vacation. Things were awesome today at work. I got promoted. Not, things were really mediocre and I had an argument with one of my co-workers. No, why? Because we can't let other people in. We don't want other people to see any of our flaws. We don't want other people to see anything that's wrong with us. And we are even more careful about this when it comes to our sin and our shame, aren't we? You see, for some of us, we cover up our sin and our shame by going deeper. By going deeper into the cycle. This is a little bit of what David was doing where his, his lust turns into adultery. His adultery turns into getting another guy drunk. His getting another guy drunk turns into murder. You sort of see this cycle. And it's almost like David can't break free. It's almost like it's a gravitational pull that is sucking David more and more in because shame always isolates us. It always drives us away from others. It always tells us that we are struggling alone and nobody else can help us. And so for some of us, what that does is it puts us on a cycle of doubling down. But for others of us, and I think if you've been in the church, if you've been a Christian for a long time, here's my guess, is that this is more of your struggle. It's not so much cycling and spiraling into that sort of shame and sin cycle, but rather it is trying to cover up, it is trying to distract other people from your sin and your shame by doing good deeds. This is the classic child's thing, right? You say, child, why did you do X thing wrong? Well, He did that, right? What do we do? We work tirelessly to make sure that everybody thinks that we are very good. And if everybody thinks that I am very good, and everybody assumes that I am very good, they won't ask me questions about if I'm actually bad. If I give off the impression that I don't really sin, that I don't really do anything wrong, guess what? Nobody's going to ask me about what's going on with my heart. I have successfully distracted you from myself by doing all these religious works. Think about it. How often do you think, I wonder what's going on with my pastor's heart? How often do you think, you know, I wonder what deep, dark sin he is hiding? Right? You don't think that because you assume, well, he's a spiritual authority. He must have it all together. Guess what? I'm winning in that scenario because you're not asking me hard questions, and I have used my religious good works, my religious authority, all that I have going, to distract you from what's going on in my heart. Surely that person who volunteers every week, week after week at City Church, surely that person does not have deep, dark things in their heart. They don't have any sin or shame. We use our religious good works to build up a giant distraction from what we don't want anybody else to see. David is talking all of this shalom. How is the shalom of the war? How is the Is Joab at peace? Are all of the people safe? He's using all this religious language to cover up this deep shame that he absolutely cannot tell anyone about. And what's interesting is that this response to cover our shame, to hide, has been instinctive in us since Eden. What's the first thing Adam and Eve do after they eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They look down and they say, Whoa, I'm naked. Let's go find some trees and let's go make some underwear because I'm naked and this isn't good. What are they doing? They're covering their shame. Just like David. Just like you. Just like you. So are we left without hope? We're going to walk out of here going, well, I'm really good at covering up my shame and hiding behind my religious good works. Thank you, Justin. Next time the world cups on in four years, I'll remember not to come. Think Jesus, no. Thank you, Jesus, no. It's interesting in this story, while we see so much of a wreck in David's life, we see something really interesting in Uriah. Uriah is blameless in this passage. Uriah does everything to be faithful, and yet, Uriah ends up being killed because of somebody else's sin. Because that's where sin always goes. Sin is always going to go towards death. Shame is always going to push you further and further down the road towards death and hurt. This is why God lays out the law to us. This is why God gives us bounds. He gives us bounds like the biblical sexual ethic. This is why He does that is because He knows that sin always leads to death. And not just our death, but also the death of others around us. And David's sin leads to the death of an innocent man. And church, your sin also leads to the death of an innocent man. The only man who was ever truly innocent, Jesus. You see, this passage, yes, reminds us of our sin as we look at David, but it also reminds us of our Savior as we look at Uriah. Because Jesus not only dies the death that our sin deserves, but He also takes the shame away from us. Think about the Garden of Eden. After God comes to them and says, Where are you? And He begins to give them promises about how this is not the end of the story, how sin won't have the last word. He begins to promise to them what He's going to do, how He's going to send a Savior born of the children of Eve. And when he sends that Savior, that Savior is going to take away their sin. But you know what else he does? Do you know what else God does in that moment? Do you remember? He kills an animal and skins it and covers their shame. God gives them better clothes. God covers their shame for them. And so we see in Eden and we see in Uriah these two parts of the good news of Jesus. That Jesus has not only died for us, not only bled, not only taken what our sin deserves, but he's also taken our shame. It is no accident that Jesus was exposed and naked on the cross because what Jesus was doing is taking the shame that you and I carry. The bag that we have slung over our shoulder that we can't let go of the sins that we want so desperately not to tell anyone else about, Jesus has taken them and forgiven them and covered them in his blood. He, the innocent man, has died on behalf of us, the shame coverers, the sin hiders, the Davids, the Justins, and city churches. And so this God, who loves us this much, calls you and I out of hiding the only way for us to come out of hiding is first if we truly believe that what Jesus is saying here is true. The only way that you and I are going to come out of the hiding of our sin is if we believe that the gospel of Jesus is true, that I am accepted before the Father. No matter what that sin is that you don't want me to name right now, you are accepted before the Father. And it's only when we're really believing that, really trusting in that, that we can begin to come out of hiding. so we need to have people who we know will show us this kind of love. The kind of love that accepts us even knowing our deepest, darkest secrets. You see, true love is not love without knowledge. True love is not I don't want to hear what's wrong with you, I just want to love you. No, true love is, I know what's wrong with you and I still love you. I know your sin and I still accept you. And so part of what this message is, it's a call to us to have those sort of friendships. To have those people who we know, know are junk and love us. City Church, that's something that we desperately need is those sort of people in our lives. But not only do we need those sort of people in our lives, but our sin and our shame is a reminder that as we begin to see Jesus undoing the story, as we begin to see Jesus healing and restoring and bringing beautiful pictures of redemption to these things, that this is also a place where we need to be those sort of things where we need to be the sort of friends who can be honest and accepting and loving of others, even in the face of darkness, even in the face of ugliness, even in the face of something as messed up as David taking a good friend's wife who was 30 years younger. The way that we can begin to do this is by getting to see Jesus more and more as the one who knows our sin, dies for our sin, and loves us. Let's pray. God, our impulse is to hide. Our impulse is to cover to distract people from our sin. Whether we distract people from our sin with our accomplishments or our religious good works, whether we deal with our sin and shame by hiding it underneath a pile of good deeds or by cycling deeper into it. Wherever we are, Jesus, wherever we find ourselves this morning, we find ourselves in need of it.